You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Good morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Josh, the pastor here. First time guests and visitors, big warm welcome to you. We're honored that you're here with us. We're chipping our way through the book of Genesis. Hopefully you got one of our study guides on the way in. We're just working line by line through this. And for the past few weeks, we've been zooming in, looking at uh, the conclusion of the book, which really focuses in on this character, Joseph. Last week, we left off looking at Joseph's time in Potiphar's house and the example that he provides to us of enduring temptation, resisting temptation there. If you remember, Potiphar's wife had got a bad case of the hots for Joseph, which resulted in uh, Joseph literally having to run away out of the house. Um, She kind of spun the story to her husband, and the chapter concluded with Joseph being put into jail. If you've been with us, we're only a couple chapters into the life of Joseph, but what we're seeing is that his life is one pit to the next. His brothers had thrown him into a pit. Um, Potiphar's wife now has thrown him into the pit. And what we're going to see, though, is that God is doing something in this pit. In today's chapter, we're actually going to see Joseph go from the pit unto the palace. But before that can take place, God's going to do something in the character of this man, Joseph. He's going to teach him patience and long-suffering. Last week, we saw... There's some situations we need, you know, they're overcome by running from them. Other situations we're going to see this week, victory comes from not running. We need to stay put, and this morning we're going to talk about why that is. If you haven't already, open your Bibles up, Genesis 40. You need your Bible open here. If you don't have one, we've got some on the barrel at the back. That's our gift to you. You can even just Google Genesis 40. We'll follow along that way. Um, While you open your Bibles up, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you as we've been singing, you are our all-sufficient merit. We have no right to come before your throne, but in Christ we, we believe, we, could, we confess as your community that you're building here that um, though our, our, our sins are many, they've been paid for in Christ, and our only plea before you is that Christ become the totality of our merit. We pray this morning as we open your word um, that you spoke, that you've preserved for us, that your Holy Spirit would come and ignite this into flames and in, in our minds and in our hearts so that our lives would be transformed and we'd come to be more mature, more complete, to think more rightly, to understand more clearly as a result of it. And that's a work I'm dependent on you for, so I ask for your empowerment, and um, we pray in the great name of Jesus to you, Father. Amen. <clears throat> we're, we're picking it up in, in chapter 40, and we're going to work through it. We're going to work through... Actually, most of chapter 41 as well, which is a great section of text, and it's why we're not, uh, it's so long that that's why we're not reading at the front like we normally do. We'd all be standing for 15, 20 minutes while we read this. So I'm going to work through it kind of by reading parts of it, summarizing parts of it, and um, we'll, we'll do this, and then we'll t- kind of work through the text first, and then we're going to take a look at what I see it presenting to us. Um, for now, though, what we're going to do is we will just begin in verse 1. It says this. Sometime after this, so after the events in Potiphar's house, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the lord of the king of Egypt and 
And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. This phrase that it opens up with some time after this refers to the period after he'd, he'd been thrown into jail from Potiphar's house, after the time at Potiphar's house. But it's a bit of a pregnant phrase in the sense that Joseph had been in jail for quite a long time. How much, it's, it's hard to say, but what we do know is that Joseph was sold into slavery when he was 17. He comes up out of the pit, as we're going to see in our, our, our text today, into um, Pharaoh's house when he's 30. So in total, he spends 13 years here. What the breakdown is, how much in Potiphar's house, how much in jail, it's hard to say, but Jewish commentators, they record him being in Potiphar's house for one year and then in jail for 12 and if that's right, then when it says sometime after this, that sometime is actually referring to 10 years' time. He's been in jail for 10 years because what we're going to see two years from this time, he goes up into Pharaoh's house. So it's a long period of time. Uh, Joseph's probably starting to think, man, I'm never going to get out of jail. But as we're going to see, God is working there. Um, something of importance after this sometime is referenced, um, something of importance is, is brought to our attention. Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker are, are thrown into prison after 10 years, potentially. These men, though, they're not just kitchen staff or kind of the service workers of the Egyptian kingdom. These are quite high-ranking officials. They have an important job within Pharaoh's house. They had the responsibility of making sure nobody tried to poison him, his drink or his food. This was their role. And um, the fact that they're thrown into prison might lead one to conclude per perhaps one of them has failed at their job. Take a look at verse 5. We'll drop down there. It says, one night, both of them dreamed something. So now what we're going to see is kind of the tension set up for the rest of our two chapters we're going to work through. They had a dream. The cupbearer and the baker of Egypt, uh, they were confined in the prison. Each had his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. So Joseph came to them <clears throat> pardon me, in the morning, he saw they were troubled. So he asks them, uh, why are your faces downcast? And they said to them, we had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. Two important things to note about dreams here. They've come up a couple times or once before in the story of Joseph, and we're going to see them again at the end. Common kind of, um, not a device, a common thing coming up within um, the story here uh, is dreams. The second thing we need to know there is that dreams were held in very high regard at this time. Today, culturally, we largely view dreams the way Freud taught us to, the idea that um, it's, it's our inner psyche kind of communicating outwards or maybe communicating what it really wants. It's the inner thought life expressing itself. They had a very different perspective. I think we see it a lot in the Bible as well, too. These aren't just the kind of the imaginations of ourselves. These are things that oftentimes are being communicated to us from somewhere outside. Egyptians definitely believed this. They believed that there was a spiritual realm, and the gods were communicating to them through dreams. And they would go to people. They had special books, kind of like we have the internet now. You can go on and go, here's my dream. What does it mean? Um, people would interpret these dreams. And, and Joseph comes and finds these guys a little discouraged, a little downcast, um, because they don't have one of these books to decipher their dream. And they're wondering, what are the gods trying to communicate to me? So Joseph says this to them in, in verse 8. He says, well, don't interpretations belong to God? It's not a book. Tell them to me. 
Tell them to me. So um, the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there was three branches. And as soon as the branch budded, it blossoms shot forth. The clusters ripened into grapes. The Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in front of Pharaoh. And Joseph said, this is the interpretation. Actually, we'll come back to the interpretation here in, in, in one sec. Let's note this. The, the cupbearer dreams of wine. That's, that's part of his um, role and his task, in, in his duty in front of Pharaoh. And it shows him being diligent, doing his due diligence and preparing it for Pharaoh. He's selecting choice grapes to make the wine that he would serve to Pharaoh. So th- this is sort of what's going on in this dream. Joseph comes back and he deciphers the dream, interprets it. He says to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. That phrase, lift up your head's a little, it's a, it's a juicy one. We're going to see again in a minute. <clears throat> he'll, he'll lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, formerly as when you were his cupbearer. Uh, then Joseph hears the second dream. We read it in verse 16. The chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable. Hey, that, that sounded good. I'll share my dream with you too. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the, the birds were eating it out of the basket. So again, notice his dreams are about a basket of baked goods, consistent with his role as chief baker, but he's not doing his due diligence. Birds of the air are coming and stealing it. So this is how uh, Joseph interprets it in verse 18. Joseph says, well, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and in three days, here's this phrase again, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. He's going to take your head off. He's going to hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh for you. So not Um, Not as good as the first dream. (laughs) It looks like here um, the the baker is the one who had had, um, potentially failed to do his job in in front of Pharaoh. It's being revealed here. And um, so he interprets these dreams, and and he he tells the the cupbearer, hey, hey, when you're restored, remember me. Remember me. Uh, Verse 23, we see this, remember me when you're restored. But then it it says this unfortunate detail, yet the cupbearer did not remember him. So he goes out, the cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh's house just as the dream um, God had revealed in this dream, but he didn't remember him. So Joseph here, he's probably waking up for a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe even a few months, hopeful, hey, surely the cupbearer is coming today. But day after day, it doesn't happen. And so again, I think at some point, Joseph's probably just giving up. He's probably, here I am in this pit. Chapter 41, as we read on, the very first verse, it tells us two whole years go by. It's a long time. But then it adds this. It tells us Pharaoh had two dreams, and he wanted to know the interpretation. So he sends for all the magicians and wise men in Egypt. I'm going to summarize the front half of chapter 41. He, he invites all of the, the wise men, all of the guys with their dream books and their interpretations, come and interpret my dream, but no one can. And it's then in that tension that the cupbearer remembers Joseph's interpreting of his own dream, and 
recommends him to Pharaoh. Verse 14 of chapter 41, it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he'd shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Something noteworthy here in this text, this word pit. Thirteen years earlier, it, it showed up as well when his brothers took his coat off of him and threw him into a pit. We've said Joseph's been just one pit to the next his whole life. Now we see him lifted up out of the pit. This is the turning point in the story of Joseph. Joseph coming up out of this pit. So he's brought out, and then it says he shaves himself because, let's be honest, 13 years in prison, man or woman, you're going to come out looking like a Wookiee. So he comes, he comes to Pharaoh, and, and then verse 15 tells us this. It says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you can hear a dream and, and interpret it. So Joseph said, well, it's not me, but God will give Pharaoh the answer. So Joseph, this isn't some superpower, magical skill. It's not like a parlor trick. Um, his ability to interpret dreams comes from God because no servant who God's gifted gets to take credit for the gift that's in them. It has to go back to God because it's just God's gifts he's put in people who he's graciously saved and shown favor to. It's all grace, so you don't get to collect glory for any of it. It all goes back up. So he goes on to, to hear and interpret the dream now. And I'll, and I'll read a larger chunk from verse 17 um, onward. Pharaoh said to Joseph, his dream, Behold, in my dream, I, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate of the first seven plump cows, carnivorous cows. But when they'd eaten them, no one would would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as hungry as at the beginning. Then I awoke, and I saw also another dream in seven ears growing on a, a tree, or sorry, growing on one stalk, seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered and thin and and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And then the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So just looking at these dreams, the the cows here, first of all, being in the Nile, kind of communicating this idea. They're in there. It's not very deep. They can walk into it. They're cooling off. There's a heat wave of some sort. There's, There's heat that they're escaping by going in. Uh, but then the thin cows come and eat them up, kind of communicating this idea that livestock are going to starve and die. The second dream, with um, speaking, of course, not to animals, but a very similar message with regards to plant life, both speaking to this idea there's going to be a drought, there's going to be a famine. Egypt was in a unique place where they didn't often have this happen because they weren't dependent on the rain. All of their water came from the Nile, which ran through there, and... <clears throat> They worshipped the the Nile as a god. They had gods who were they believed were in charge of the Nile and its annual flooding, which kept them kind of the fertile basin of, of all the East, Near East, Middle East area. But here, God is striking the Nile in a sense. He, he's saying something's going to happen to it. And there's some parallels, I think. If you're familiar with the Exodus story, God comes and flexes his might over the gods of Egypt. And here we're seeing 
the gods fail them. Their Nile's going to dry up. They're not going to be able to provide for them. And it's, it's God who will save them when the Nile fails them, when their Nile God fails them. It's kind of what's being communicated by this dream. And so drop down to verse 28. It says this. Uh, he, he gave this interpretation to Pharaoh that, well, God showed Pharaoh what he's about to do. So here's Joseph interpreting the dream. There's going to come seven years of great plenty through all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine. All the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land um, by reason of the famine that's going to come afterward. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means the thing is fixed by God, and God is shortly to bring it about. Comes in twos. If you remember Joseph's dream came in two at the beginning, it's kind of like God saying, hey, I'm doubling down. This is what's happening. I'm going to tell you it twice. I'm so sure of it. Because God's will is not, not thwarted. He, he tells him it twice. Joseph interprets the dream and tells Pharaoh there's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of lack that will be very severe, severe. But he also gives Pharaoh some wisdom on how to handle this situation that they're about to face. Again, I'll read a longer chunk. He, come, he, he gives him this advice. He said, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. So 20% each year, store it up. Let him gather all the food during these good years. And that food will be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are about to become. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants and Pharaoh said to his servants, well, can we find a man like him in whom is the Spirit of God? Again, if you remember earlier on, the Spirit of God's been observed in Joseph, just how he serves in the midst of, of horrible situations. Can we find a man like this? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, well, since God has shown you all this, there's none as discerning as wise and you are. You shall be over my house. My people shall order themselves as you command, only, regard the th um, only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, pay attention to that, and put a gold chain around his neck, and he made him ride second in his chariot. And when, people ca when he came, people called out before him, Bow the knee. He's been lifted to a, a, a great place of prominence. His life began here at the beginning of this section in Genesis, just from one pit to the next. But now his situation takes a complete reversal. He goes from the pit to the penthouse, from prison to the palace. And if you were with us at the beginning, again, you'll remember his, his father had given him a coat of many colors before. He'd had a royal robe on before. This coat of many colors kind of looks like um, Wells' shirt there. I see, Wells, you wore your shirt of many colors this morning. Thank you for that. This was a, a sign of royalty then. And um, you'll remember earlier on in the story, his brothers took it off of him when he was thrown in the pit. So he removed, his royal robes were taken off. Now as he comes up out of the pit, they're put back on this the pits bookend the story, in a sense, but so too do the robes. Joseph's wearing a fancy coat again. And as I thought, kind of spent some time thinking about the significance of this this week, 
a robe came off, now our robe's put back on. I kept coming to this thought that we see the, the story of Joseph start with him wearing a robe, but in a sense, he wasn't really worthy of wearing it. If you remember, he had swagger, but none of the experience to back it up. And now we see Joseph being put back into a royal robe, but this time he's a transformed man. He's been through the ringer. He's learned skills the hard way. He's got a master degree from the University of Life, if you will. The, the robe his dad gave him kind of communicates this, just how he was his father's favorite son, and his father was favoring him and protecting him and pampering him. He got to stay home while his brothers were working in the field. His dad sheltered him. He protected him, but in a way, his dad, in doing this, was stunting his development. He, he was keeping him from learning the things he needed to in order to become the person God was going to use in the dream that he'd given Joseph early on. Joseph needed actual experience. He needed to get his hands dirty. He needed to become a man. And quite ironically, it's the sinful actions of his brother throwing him into the pit, taking that coat off that put him in the place where he could learn the things he needed to learn. Favored sons aren't fit for power. Pampered sons of politicians often do the most damage when they hold power. Why? <laughs> Because they don't have real life experience of the everyday man. They haven't climbed the ladder. They're born at the top. And the Romans knew this too. The Romans stopped putting their kids in power. Instead, they would pick someone and, and then train them up. And they would adopt them and raise them up. Because they found that this was a problem. When you, just, when you inherit something that you haven't worked for, problem comes. Here's my point, okay. Joseph needed to have his fancy coat his father gave him taken off before he would be able to wear the royal coat that Pharaoh was going to put on him. And notice here, his brothers took his coat off of him because of his swagger. Pharaoh put it on him because of his humility. When he stood before Pharaoh, all of his swagger is gone. 13 years in jail took it off. He's a changed man. And he would have never become this person apart from the situations he went through. If you'll remember back to chapter 37, God gave Joseph a vision of what he was going to do through him. But he didn't tell Joseph what he was going to do, in a sense, to him in order to do something in him. He, he didn't tell him how he was going to do it. He told him the ends. These chapters, 37, right up to where we've left off here in 41, they're showing us the methods God uses to do a transformative work in the man, Joseph. And they're showing us what God you know, was using the situations for, to what he was seeking to accomplish in him. As I thought about this, it's this, patience and long-suffering. God works in our situations. God even allows our situations, situations we would never choose in order to accomplish things that would never take place without the situation, God works in the midst of situations we would never walk ourselves into, that we would prefer to be spared. And we see this throughout the scripture. Think about this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into the fiery furnace they go. Would they have gone there? No. God did not spare them the fire, but he was with them in the fire. Daniel would never have walked himself into the lion's den. 
God did not spare him the lion's den, though, but God was with him in the lion's den. And Joseph here wasn't spared the pit, but God was with him in it. Potiphar's house, jail, God is there. God is using, in fact, these horrible situations to teach Joseph something absolutely essential, patience and long-suffering. And we're going to look at these two topics for a little bit, so I've got them up on the screen so we can define them and you know what I'm talking about. Patience is this waiting for something that's coming. Long-suffering is a bit different, but kind of a, a close cousin in that it's enduring something that's happening. Long-suffering here, it's, it's more than the ability to hold out for something that's coming in the future. It's the ability to regulate oneself and not be tossed about by what's presently happening. Both of these skills are going to be necessary qualities for Joseph to have in order to embody the character that he would need in order to fulfill the role Pharaoh would thrust him into that would later put him in the place where he could be the person that God had given him the vision of him being back with the two dreams of his brother. In, brothers and family in chapter 37. He was going to need patience and he was going to need long suffering to get through the time in prison, but also for what would come after. He would need patience in order to prepare for seven years. So prepare for the famine that was coming. And he would need long suffering to endure the seven years of famine that would come. Both of these he learned during his 13 years in captivity. And he had to learn how to suffer long, he had to learn how to patiently wait. He had to suffer long in prison due to the false accusations of Potiphar's wife and patiently wait for the cupbearer to tell of him to Pharaoh. And it was these situations that he would have never chosen that produced the qualities that would be essential to him fulfilling the purpose God had sent him to Egypt for. They were essential characteristics for Joseph. And patience and long-suffering are absolutely essential characteristics for disciples of Jesus today as well. You cannot mature as a disciple or finish the race marked out for us without them. Just as Joseph needed patience and long-suffering, every disciple of Jesus needs it as well. So I want to look at these. I want to look at five things we need to know about patience and long-suffering because they're required of us. The first is this. They're godly, meaning they're, they're characteristics that we see in God first. They're displayed in God. God is patient. He's long-suffering with his creation, with the family of Abraham. We've seen this. He's, he's put up with some pretty jacked-up individuals for a long period of time, yet he, he's still faithful. He's patient and he's long-suffering after this with idolatrous Israel during the period of the kings, if you've read through the Old Testament. He's patient with them, and God continues to wait patiently and endure with long-suffering mankind and and his redeemed today as well. A few verses that speak to this. Romans 6, Romans 9, pardon me, says, What if God, intending to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the vessels of his wrath? He's patiently dealing with all of the sin in the world. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the vessels of his mercy, who he's prepared in advance for glory? God's patient and long-suffering. Romans 2 says this to us, Do we presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance? That word forbearance is, I think, just 
long-sufferingness, another way to say that. So do we presume on his patience and long-sufferingness and patience, not knowing that these are meant to lead us to repentance? Some are just abusing this, going, oh, God's never going to do anything. And in fact, he's just being patient so that we might come to repentance. God, what we see in the scriptures, is the perfect displayer of patience and long-suffering. Us, not so much. Here's the second point. Patience and long-suffering aren't natural in the sense they're not natural human characteristics. Can I get an amen? Anyone? Um, this is a, Patience is a virtue, they say, but it's not a virtue any of us naturally have. Anyone here have a two-year-old that's patient? No, it's because we don't pop out with these things. They, need to be, they can be nurtured into us. You might learn that because you've got some, by God's grace, patience parents. But none of us, this isn't just a natural thing. It's hard won. Patience and long-suffering, they're godly characteristics. They're not naturally human characteristics. Third thing, though, we need to see is they are necessary. They're necessary for every disciple of Jesus to learn. Colossians says this. There we go. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. We need it. Romans 12 says this, be, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. We need patience. Why? Because we're going to endure tribulation. We need long-suffering to get through it. The scripture's clear. We need these attributes if we're going to run the race set in front of us. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Revelation 14 says, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. We're called. You need endurance. Hebrews 12 calls us to lay aside everything else, all the weights, the sin which clings to us so closely so that we can run with endurance the race that's set before us. We need to run with endurance. And notice there's a race set before us. There's obstacles set before us. Patience and long-suffering, they're, they're necessary characteristics of every disciple of Jesus. I'll use an analogy just to hopefully illustrate the point if it hasn't been sufficiently illustrated by the scriptures. If we had a car <clears throat> and it, it only ran for five minutes at a time, so it started 100% of the time, it would rev up, and, but it would only carry us about five minutes down the road before needing to be restarted and restarted. I mean, this would be a useless car. It would leave you months in somewhere you don't want to be. You, you, um, you, know, you get part way there, and then that's it. No, you need a car that will take you all the way there. Similarly, we need faith that takes us all the way there. Our character needs to be character that continues us all the way there. We need to keep working. It needs to be able to handle the bumps. It has to keep going and endure till the end. And James speaks to this. The brother of Jesus says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. We need that patience to get through till the coming of the Lord. And, and he points us to farmers. See how farmers wait for, for their harvest. They're patient about it until it receives all the rain it needs to make it grow. Likewise, we also need to be patient. There's a race marked out for us, Hebrews 12 said. And it's patience and long-suffering that produces the endurance needed to run the race marked out for us. It's a godly characteristic. It's not a human one. It's necessary 
And it has a purpose. This is our fourth point. We see it in the story of Joseph. He waits years in Potiphar's, um, between Potiphar's house and, and, and the jail for the servants to come and get him. Waits years after, you know, he, for them to give a report to, to Pharaoh of him. And it all makes sense at the end. If you get further on, you can see, well, God was timing things. There was a famine coming. He needed to have Pharaoh have a dream so that he would be desperate enough to bring someone up from, from jail who looked like a Wookiee to be able to interpret his dream and do all these things, right? It, there was something God was aligning that he needed patience to wait for. It has a purpose. The last thing I want to point out about patience and long-suffering, though, kind of the, the brutal reality of it, is that they're hard-won. These are things that take time. By saying it, it's a virtue, it, 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 it's hard one. It's more than a virtue, I should say. It's, a, it's actually a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians tells us that the, it is. A fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, Something the, the Spirit produces in us. Actually, it goes on to say self-control, which is that ability to regulate ourselves when situations try to pull us somewhere else. I think it's, again, uh, self-control and long-suffering. They're, if they're not the same thing, they're definitely close cousins. These are characteristics produced in us by the Holy Spirit, but they're produced in us by the Holy Spirit through the situations that we go through. We can't. We, we can't produce these in ourselves on our own, and we can't get them apart from situations that will produce them. When, when our situations produce suffering, we want to run from. It's, it's there. It's the act of staying and trusting God in the middle of those tough situations where we, we learn these characteristics. It's only when we want to do the opposite, but we choose to engage in, in, in what we know we should, that these things begin to become produced in us. And God has a funny way of sending situations that demand these qualities from us. And it's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he knows what he's doing with us and he knows what he wants to um, transform us into. Patience and long-suffering aren't just magically kind of occurring in us. They come by way of, of effort and, and experience. Situations that shake out the worst in us, take us right to the edge and sometimes right over the edge. Being stuck in traffic on a bridge for one and a half hours. Anyone else this week? Year-long delays in being promoted. These are what patience is produced through. Engaging long-winded talkers. Potty training your toddlers. Waiting on hold with Air Canada. <laughs> the, these are the situations that rattle out the worst in us, but it's actually the ones that, while they do that, they also produce patience in us. Situations that naturally stir us towards impatience, the Spirit, by God's grace, uses to produce patience. It's through enduring it that we learn long-suffering. It's not something you can kind of read about, download Matrix-style into your brain and just suddenly manifest. It's more martial arts-style, where you, you sit under some instruction and you learn it here, and then you go into the dojo and you practically learn it through failing it at a whole bunch. 
that's the way we learn these attributes. And just as muscles are produced by enduring testing over and over, patience and long-suffering are produced by enduring trial and, and testing over and over. Muscles are, being, are, are produced in us by being pushed to the failure, point of failure, pardon me, over and over and over, multiple times, and keep showing up doing that, so too are patients in long-suffering by showing up and, and suffering and going into situations that, that test us over and over and over. And, and this is true in many areas of our life. So to get physically fit, you need to keep going. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It's a compounding effect, a kind of compound interest effect of us showing up to the gym every day. That's how you're going to get fit. You might want to relax, but instead you make the choice to work out, and over time it will begin to produce results. Same with wealth. Some of you have, have wealth. You, you could maybe be born into the Rockefeller family, get it that way, but you'll probably lose it just as quick. It's the disciplines of, of not, in, not indulging in what you want and making choices according to some sort of code of conduct that governs you, making that choice over and over and over and over that eventually produces a, a compound interesting interest effect on your wealth. I, I've put a little, I'll put a slide up on the screen. It's true of everything. The more we do it, the more we develop patterns. Our outcomes are a result of our patterns. But it takes patterning. It, it, patterns take repetition. And so the more we do something, um, the longer it does, the more we actually begin to produce results. It's true of everything in our life. Most of us quit before we start to see results because we go, this is doing nothing. And it's right about that point where it's actually probably about to take off and start paying um, whatever it's true, money or working out, learning new skills, um, everything except golf. I don't think this is true of <laughs> golf. The more time we put in, it just gets worse and worse. Um, patience and long-suffering, they function this way, though. It's through experiencing situations that bring out the opposite in us, bring us to the point of failure, test our agency by which you know, we're, we're forced to make a choice, to believe in something, act in a way that's probably in opposition to what we want to do. It's through doing this over and over and over that we learn these attributes, that the Spirit develops them in us. And if you look at the life of Joseph, man, 13 years would test your patience. It would teach you this long-suffering. But Joseph would have never, ever chosen it. He would have just stayed at home with his dad, wearing his coat while his brothers worked in the field. But in order to put on the, the royal robes Pharaoh was going to put on him, he needed to embody these characteristics, and therefore he needed to encounter these situations. And I want to pull us back in now. I think this story is included in the book of Genesis to remind God's people of this as they came up out of Egypt. So remember, Genesis here, it's written to the descendants of Joseph and his family um, 400 years later as they come up out of Egypt. God's reminding them of what, how he works for their good in the midst of horrendous situations. The horrendous situation they just came up out of from Egypt, but all of the situations they're going to face as well. They're, they're going to take possession of a promised land, which is going to take long-suffering in battle. They're going to encounter... Um, captivity to other nations again. They're going to patiently have to wait for their Messiah to come. These attributes, they're going to need them. These characteristics will be needed. And God is reminding them of this before they're about to face more situations 
which form a sovereign syllabus. God has written to transform his people. And if this is true for Joseph, and if this is true for the people of Israel, the future descendants of Israel, then this same truth is true for us today as well. God is working his plan. God is doing things in the situations we're facing. And God is seeking to to shape our character through the circumstances that we face. And if we believe this truth, that God is working our situations, they've been sovereignly allowed by God to shape us and to grow us in maturity, then we need to ensure that we are engaging with the situations we face rather than just trying to rid ourselves from them. We need to see them as more than just annoyances, but opportunities, a sovereign syllabus designed by God to shape us because they are. We see this with Joseph. These were sent by God, and and the way through them, I think, are we see modeled by Joseph. He engages. He serves. He's serving in Potiphar's house. He does the same thing here. Actually, in chapter 40, verse 4, if you look down at it, it it says, despite the fact he's in jail, he's coming up and, and serving and attending to the needs of others. In the midst of jail, he's serving. He's engaging in the situation that's before him. Actually, drop down to verse 7. Um, it, it comes up again. Uh, he asked, why are your faces downcast? He, he's, he's checking in on other inmates, which yeah, it seems like a silly question. My face is downtrodden because I'm in jail. But Joseph here, he's embraced his situation, so he has joy in the midst of it to the point where he's like, why are you downcast? Because they have no hope in their trial. He has hope in it. Practice, how are we engaging in the situations we face? If we believe God's meticulously sovereign then we shouldn't be trying to be free from the situations we find ourselves in one minute sooner than when God deems is necessary to accomplish what he's wanting to do in us. Maturing in our faith requires that we engage in the situations that we find ourselves in rather than trying to rid ourselves of them. What, ask yourself this, I don't know. I'm trying to figure this out for myself too. What might God be seeking to do in the middle of the situation that you're facing? Could he perhaps be teaching you patience and long-suffering? That's a good thing for him to do that, because we need that if we're going to finish the race. Sometimes we imagine a, you know, an even long for some ideal situ- you know, future situation where we'll be elevated and we miss the opportunities that God's sent to equip us to be what he might elevate us to at one point. Joseph had had this attitude. He wouldn't have served the men in jail the way he did. The baker wouldn't have introduced him to Pharaoh, and the rest of the story wouldn't have happened. Uh, The situations we, we find ourselves in might not be where we want to be or even where we think God wants us to be, but perhaps the the way to the place where God wants to take us, or even where we want to be, comes through faithfully engaging in the opportunities that are in front of us now. And so I think we need to ask ourselves, what does it look like to to wholly 
fully, faithfully engage in what's in front of you right now. Last week, we saw Joseph set an example for resisting temptation. This week, we see a beautiful example of patience and persisting under trial, of engaging right where we are, of belief in God that manifests itself in, in faith and, and works even when situations don't make any sense, even when it would be easy to lose hope. I'll go back to James, who said this, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let it have its full effect so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God remembered Joseph. Church, he will remember us as well. We're to be a people who wait patiently. We're to be a people who rejoice and count it a joy when we encounter trials because our God isn't wasting them. He's using them. He's allowed them even in in order to transform us further and further into his character. Ben, you, you can make your way up. I'm, I'm going to close by saying this to us. This hopefully an encouragement. I want to encourage us to be a people who embrace our situations praxis because of who our God is. He's the one who's absolutely in control, ruling over nations like Egypt, every other obstacle we might face. He's more powerful, and if you're facing a situation, it's not because it snuck past his guard. It's because he's allowed it. And some here, I know you're in a, you feel like you're in a pit. I want you to, from this, hear this. God has not forgotten you there. If you're his, he's doing something there. Many of us, we've walked in here overwhelmed by the situations of our lives. And as we move into a time of response, I want to just invite you to lift your eyes back onto this glorious God who's working all things together to accomplish his ends. Marvel at the God who does this. And, and remember this, regardless of where you are, we have this great hope. We are not forgotten. If you remember, um, this kept coming to mind this week as I was working through the text. The thief on the cross hanging next to Jesus. And he says to him, the same thing Joseph said to, to the cupbearer, remember me. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus will not forget us. We are not forgotten in the pit.